This is the second message in a a little mini-series called Belittled Women, looking at women in ministry, women in the New Testament, women in the church. And uh, today we are dealing with one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, uh, outside the book of Revelation probably. It is 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. So if you could have that open, that would be great. If you don't have your sort of paper Bible with you, if you had, um, if you had your phone, you just work away. Uh, it'd be good if you could see it and run your eye over the passage. I'll have as much of it as I can on the screen, but I'll be bouncing about a bit within it as well. Um, so we have two very difficult passages of Scripture to deal with. I'm only going to deal with one of them this morning because I want to slow down and and give it the attention it deserves. And then 1 Corinthians 14, we will get to next week and probably a bit of Genesis and we'll try to tie this up uh, next week. 1 Corinthians 14 is addressed to a church. These are two very different letters. 1 Corinthians 14 would have been read publicly. So so Paul would have sent this, someone brought it to the church, and then someone would have stood up in the church or in all the house churches in Corinth and would have read 1 Corinthians to all of them out loud publicly. 1 Timothy is different. 1 Timothy is not a letter to a church. It's a letter to Timothy. And Timothy was the leader of a church in Ephesus where there was a lot of trouble going on. These are Paul's commands to Timothy This letter was not publicly read at Ephesus. It's a different letter from 1 Corinthians. And it is not a manual on how to run a church. There's a lot we can learn from 1 Timothy. But sometimes there's a a view of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus that this is Paul's instruction manual for how to run a church. It's not. It's his letters to Timothy and Titus about what was going on in their context and how they were to deal with them. And if you start with these difficult texts, you get bogged down in them and you can never get out of them. If you start with the big picture, which is what we tried to do last week, of the whole New Testament, of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, of Phoebe and Junius and and Mary Magdalene, Junia, sorry, see the way I slipped into that. The Phoebe and Junia and Mary Magdalene and and all of those New Testament women, if you get the big picture... Uh, then you can go in and look at these two texts in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians that seem to be in disagreement with the big picture. Uh, so let's read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. And goodness, it's hard stuff. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And here's the big one. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. 
goodness me, every verse is a swamp. <laughs> it is a very, very difficult passage. And it is the passage that people who want to silence women will whip out as, as their first sort of exhibit A. Boom, look at Paul, look what he says, black and white, on the page of your Bible, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. What's going on here? We have work to do. Um, sometimes when people bring out a text like this to make their case or make their argument, they will, they will wheel out a cliche like, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. Or they might say, I take the Bible literally. And literally what Paul says is, I do not permit a woman to teach. And there you go. <laughs> Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. I take it literally. No, you don't. <laughs> okay? You don't take the Bible literally. Literally, There are huge parts of the Bible that you take literally. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We take that literally. Jesus died for our sins. We take that literally. Okay, there are huge parts of it we take literally. There are other parts of it we don't. Um, just in case you think my wife is a picture of righteousness, this is what she sent me last night from Isaiah fifty-six twelve. Let us drink our fill of beer and tomorrow will be like today or even far better. Okay, we'll take that literally. Are you up for it? What time do you want to get together tonight? And we will take it literally. Or, or what about this? I didn't see anybody do this this morning. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, if you want, we can take a few minutes. You know, just think about who you're beside. <laughs> Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, you don't take that literally. You've never been in a church that took that literally. And if you did, you probably wouldn't go back. I was in, a, in a, a Bible school in Zimbabwe about 13 or 14 years ago and I was teaching a group of students and we were on a break and went outside and this dude came over and took my hand and we went for a walk. And I thought, mate, <laughs> we're moving too fast here. Like, and we went off and walked around the, the campus of the Bible school and I thought, what is going on? I was with Eugene. I was like, what is this? What have you done? Why did you bring me here? And I was looking around and there was various pairs of men holding hands. <laughs> this big dude, like, oh man, but that was just culture. That's what you did when you went for a dander with your mate. You held hands. It meant nothing other than this is my mate. All right. So culturally, in, in the culture of the New Testament, that's what people did. We don't. We don't take it literally. Yeah. And what about if we go into 1 Timothy and, and take this attitude where everything is taken literally and obeyed black and white without thinking about it. It says here in 1 Timothy 5, 9, there was, there was a list of widows who were to receive care. And Paul says, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60. So a widow who was under 60 was not allowed to receive support. Well, what if she's 59? What if a 59-year-old widow comes to the church and her 60th birthday is in two or three weeks' time and she wants some support? Do, do, they, you know, do we take it literally and just say, I'm sorry, you know, come back in a, in a month when you're 60 and we'll help you? No, we don't take it literally and we don't apply it. We think about it. We think about the context that it's written in. Still in 1 Timothy uh, 5, 11 and 13, listen to what Paul says about the younger widows. And tell me, is this an appropriate way to describe all young widows of, of all times in history? They get into the habit of being idle 
and going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense saying things they ought not to. Now, is that an apt description of a young widow? No, it is not. It is not. You can't take it literally. You can't just say, oh, well, the Bible, I, you know, Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. That's what young widows are like. No, it is not. That would be deeply offensive to say such a thing. What about chapter 6, verse 2? Um, about slaves and masters, they should serve their masters even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of the slaves. How are we going to obey that unless we go and buy some slaves? They can't be any old slaves. They have to be Christian slaves if we're going to obey this verse. We cannot obey it unless uh, we go to extremes. We cannot take it literally. First Timothy 5.23, have you got a sore tum this morning? You know, feeling a wee bit ropey, ate a dodgy Chinese or Indian last night. Uh, are you going to go home and have a glass of wine as medication for your stomach upset? Probably not. Probably not. You don't take it literally. That's what Paul said to Timothy. That's what Timothy probably did. Some people might use that as an excuse and suddenly develop a sore stomach all the time so that they can have as much wine as they want. But this is not something that we then, you know, if, if a child appears in the middle of the night and says, you know, mommy, my tummy's sore, you know, away up and get yourself a, you know, some, some Shiraz there and you'll be grand in, in 10 minutes. No, we don't. All right. What about getting into our chapter then, chapter two, where it says that how women should adorn themselves with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, or gold or pearls or costly attire. So we throw out every lady who's here this morning who has any gold or pearls or has her hair plaited. Right? So if we're going to take 1 Timothy 2.12, which is the real sticky verse in all of this, if we're going to take that verse and we're going to say, well, that has to be taken literally. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And I take the Bible literally. You have to do it with a whole book and you're going to get into awful trouble. Awful trouble. We'll see why Paul says these things as we move on. What about um, prayer meetings? Therefore, I want the men to eat. I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Have you seen any fights in the prayer meeting lately? Is, is, this, is this an all-universal, all-time uh, description of what men behave like in a prayer meeting? Now, sometimes our men can go at it quite hard on a Tuesday night whenever the, the banter meter is, is turned up and they, and they can be a bit, a bit rough with each other, but, but we, we don't need to tell them not to fight or, or to stop being angry. Right? We, have to, we have to study the Bible with intelligence. We have to study the Bible in context. We cannot just take things and say, well, that applies all throughout history. There are principles that we can learn and there are things that are specific to the context they were in. And in that, in that context then, do we say that Paul's command, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man, do we assume that that is for all of the ages? Because if we do, then we've got issues with gold and pearls and plaited hair and men fighting in prayer meetings and all sorts of things. So we're going to have to think here. And what about being deceived? It says that Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Does that mean that women are more susceptible to being deceived all throughout history? Just by being born female, you are therefore more likely to be deceived than a man is. Is that what Paul is saying? I doubt it. <laughs> I seriously doubt it. Another thing that some people will say is, and I've heard this, 
and I sort of I have to you know really contain myself when I hear it. I only read the Bible, no other books or commentaries, just the Word for me. Um, and what 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 people are trying to say by that is that they are particularly pious and holy, and they don't need to to read or to listen to teachers or or, or have any other input to help them understand the Bible. They just read the Bible, and that's it. Nothing else required. I find that remarkably ignorant. I think it's an excuse for laziness um, for people who don't want to actually rigorously engage in the Scriptures. Now, you may go through a season now and again where you say, for the next two or three months, I'm just going to read God's Word. I'm not going to be influenced by any other writer or any other podcaster or preacher. I'm just going to read the Word because I want to really focus in on it. That's fine. But to hold an attitude that throughout life, this is the only book that you read and you don't need any help to understand it is a bit ignorant. So, there is no hope, I think, of understanding what Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 2 unless we get into the context. So we're going on a little history lesson here. Are you okay with that? Yeah, there are pictures, so it'll be all right. And there'll be a homework quiz next week. So first question, who was Timothy? Timothy was a young man who Paul had discipled and who was in charge of the church. He was pastoring the church in Ephesus. He was a little bit timid, and he was uh, very aware of the fact that he was young and found it difficult to exercise then authority and leadership over the people in the church. Uh, and Paul tells him not to, not to allow people to look down on him because he is young, uh, but he is commanded that he has to get a handle on things in Ephesus, and Paul tells him what he has to do. So that's who Timothy is, Pastor Timothy of the church at Ephesus. A hard church. And then, what was the Artemis cult? Have you ever heard of the Artemis cult? If, just a wee life tip for you, if someone ever gets in your face with these verses in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and says that women should not teach, you should politely say, can you explain to me the Artemis cult? Because if they can't, they haven't done enough work on the passage to be able to wheel it out in an argument. Ephesus was the center of worship of the Greek goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. There is a picture of her, or a statue of her. Um, As with all ancient statues, her nose has fallen off. It just seems to be a trend. Um, And I've only shown her sort of from the shoulders up. I couldn't show the full picture because she has so many breasts. <laughs> She's got dozens of them. It's really, really weird. You can look it up later, but I thought we'll just we'll go with the shoulders up uh, for, for church on Sunday morning. And here's, the, here's what's left of the temple at Artemis, like a, basically a stick. Uh, there's there's one, one column left standing of the temple of Diana in Ephesus. Here's a reconstruction of it. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a big deal. Now, all of this, don't just zone out here. This is the history bit. I'll zoom back in when he gets back to the Bible. No, listen. One of this, can you imagine if one of the seven wonders of the world was in Tandrigi? <laughs> or Portadown? How, just how that would affect life in, in the surrounding area. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple to the goddess Artemis. And the residents of Ephesus were passionate about Artemis, or Diana. Uh, She's also in the background, I think, of the sort of Wonder Woman story. Somewhere loosely she's connected there. I don't know why. Acts 20, verse 34, is, is set in Ephesus. And you have Paul under pressure 
from a crowd who for about two hours just chant repeatedly, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. These people were quite passionate about their goddess. And also in chapter 20 of Acts, we have a silversmith named Demetrius who made little shrines of Artemis and brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen. The whole city revolved around this false god, Artemis, who was female. And the story of Artemis, she had a twin brother named Apollo. There he is uh, with his chariot and the sun behind him. And here's a wee, you know, digression for you that I thought was quite interesting. Uh, so that's Apollo. That picture, uh, one of the directors of NASA was looking at that picture one day in the, I think in the 60s, I assume. And he, and he was inspired by this picture of Apollo moving across the sun. And that's why the, the rockets that went to the moon were called the Apollo missions. And now NASA are, are aiming to get back to the moon again. And the rockets are called the Artemis missions. Because and one of the things that they're doing in the Artemis missions is they're trying to involve women more in designing them and engineering and even in being astronauts. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Apollo and Artemis, nothing to do with Timothy, mind you. Uh, back to the, the lady with no nose. Um, so here, here's the story of Artemis. You've got to get this, all right? They were twins, Artemis and Apollo. They were the twin children of Zeus and his wife Leto. And whenever a god or a goddess was born, they were not born as an infant, which makes the Jesus story remarkable. They were not born as an infant. They were born fully grown as adults. And Apollo, uh, or Artemis was born first of these two twins. She was born, and it was nine days then in the Greek myth, it was nine days between her birth and the birth of Apollo. And for nine days, Artemis watched her mother in labor and in pain, giving birth to Apollo, and then decided she would never have children, and she would help women who were in childbirth. So Artemis became like the goddess of midwifery, among other things, and she was seen as protecting women as they were given birth. And in the culture of Ephesus, every single pregnant woman would have been taught and raised that whenever she was in labor, she was to cry out to Artemis to help her in her labor, to help her in giving birth to her child. No non-Jewish woman in Ephesus would not have done this. They all did it. And the Artemis cult with this woman this female goddess at the center of it being worshipped was dominated completely by women. Powerful, domineering women. All the priestesses, all women. So we have a female goddess and we have all of these women who are involved in worshipping this female goddess and who have all of the lead roles in the Artemis temple. And in fact, some people think Artemis empowered women to get revenge over men who had mistreated them as well. And therefore, these women had the attitude that because I follow Artemis, I can exact authority over men and deal with men who have mistreated me. The women who were involved in the worship of Artemis had a dress code. And in their dress code, they would plait their hair and wear braids. They would wear elaborate clothes and jewelry. And they had this particular way that they would dress, 
whenever they went to the temple to worship Artemis. Are you starting to see the picture of what life in Ephesus was like? And maybe starting even to see why Paul said some of the things that he said in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now you imagine the chaos when the gospel hits Ephesus. There's quite a few chapters in Acts that are in my reading plan this week given over to what happens when the gospel hits Ephesus because it causes complete uproar, (laughs) carnage, riots. Paul is nearly killed on at least one occasion. Total chaos. And you imagine you're in the local church at Ephesus. You're in one of these house churches. The gospel has arrived. People are getting saved. These women are getting saved and they're coming to your church. (laughs) but they have a lifetime of influence of the Artemis cult in the background because that's how they were raised and how they were taught to be women and how they were taught to dress and how they were taught to relate to men. And now they've rocked up at your church (laughs) and they're causing no small amount of trouble. So how did this affect the Ephesian church? One of the problems in Ephesus, and you will read of it again and again in 1 Timothy, is false teaching, false teaching. Now, Paul predicted this. Again, in Acts, in those Ephesian chapters of Acts, Paul, as he's leaving the Ephesian Christians for the last time, and he's in tears, he knows he's never going to see them again until they meet in, in, uh, in glory. And he says, I know that after I leave, he's prophesying here, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Send to this church, you're going to be ripped apart people who are going to come in and try to damage you. Even from your own number, men will arise. Actually, as far as I know, that that should be people, not men, people. Even from your own number, people will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. That's that's what Paul sees as the future for the Ephesian church. You're going to have people who will come in and people who will rise up from among you and will distort the truth to draw people away. Wolves among the flock. And what he predicted came to pass. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, he says to Timothy, stay there in Ephesus. Timothy, a wee bit timid, a wee bit young, and a wee bit inexperienced, and a wee bit concerned. Probably didn't want to hang around with all these women coming into the church causing havoc. But Paul says, no, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrine any longer. At the end of 1 Timothy 1, Paul has already dealt with a couple of them himself. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. That means he's put them out of the church to be taught not to blaspheme. All right, so we had false teaching in the church from men who had risen up uh, and two of them named. And we also had false teaching from women. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the passage I read earlier about the young widows, not universally, but in Ephesus, said that they become idlers, they're busybodies, they talk nonsense and say things they ought not to. And some ignorant men would make jokes about this and say something like, oh, typical women. No, they have gone away after Satan. They're involved in false teaching. And they're not just going from house to house gossiping. That's not right. But that's not what Paul is dealing with here. 
They are, they are teaching. They are leading people astray. These women are going from house to house, house church to house church and house to house. And they are leading people astray and deceiving other women with the stuff that they have learned in this cult in Ephesus where they worship the female goddess. They're still influenced by that. And, and that's not just the young women, but in 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, the old women as well have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. And you think that's just a saying that Paul's using. It's not. Paul made it up. It's just a saying of Paul's that we sometimes use. And Paul didn't make it up to be a saying. Paul stated fact. There's old women going around the churches in Ephesus spreading myths. Do you see the problem in the church at Ephesus? The problem is young women and old women engaging in false teaching. These women have come from this Artemis cult and they, whether they're genuinely born again or whether they're just trying to infiltrate the church or what, I don't know, but they're coming to the church and they're bringing false teaching. That's the problem that Paul is addressing as he writes to Timothy. So what is Timothy to do with these women? Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Timothy, come on. <laughs> Take a deep breath. Stick the chin out and let's go here. All right. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles, that's braided, plaited hair, or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Do you understand why he said that? <laughs> Does Paul have a problem with women wearing gold? No. Does he have a problem with women wearing expensive clothes? No, he's quite okay with that. Does he have a problem with women having elaborate hairstyles? No. <laughs> he has a problem with women coming to church dressed like they're going to worship Artemis. That's the problem that he has. It is a cultural expression. It is not a universal expression. So anyone here this morning, I haven't looked, I should have looked, but if anyone's got plaits in the hair, you're okay. It's fine. God bless you. It means nothing in our culture, but it did in that culture. Do you see if you know the background, if you do a little bit of work in the background, you understand what Paul is saying. It all becomes really, really clear. Come to church dressed like you're going to worship God, not like you're going to worship Artemis. He's saying to these women, you've got to leave it behind. It is not culturally relevant to us in terms of the fine details, but it is relevant in terms of the principle. Okay? Now, I'm going to jump on to verse 13. Not because I'm leaving out the hard bit, because I'm going to do the hard bit at the end. Verse 13 and 14 says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And the, the guys in the group that want to shut women down in the church today say, aha, we've got you now. Paul clearly says that Adam was more important than Eve and the woman was the problem because women are more easily deceived. Really, women are more easily deceived. In the blue corner, let's put an 18-year-old man who has just got born again from a life of complete paganism, 
who has never been to church or opened the Bible or heard any truth given to him, but he has encountered Jesus and he's been born again. He's in one corner. In the pink corner, we have a woman who was raised in a pastor's home, read the scriptures daily as a child, has a PhD in New Testament studies, and has walked with God for 40 years. Who's going to be more easily deceived? The 18-year-old who knows nothing or the woman in her 60s who has saturated herself in the scriptures and the presence of God her whole life. Who's going to be more easily deceived? Ignorant, foolish men would still say the woman will be more easily deceived. Nonsense. Just nonsense, okay? It's so wrong. And in every other reference, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. It was the woman. In every other reference that Paul makes to Adam and Eve, it's always Adam who is declared to be the sinner. Always. They are equal. Adam and Eve are equal. In Hebrew, ish and isha, they are absolutely equal. And they're equally responsible for sin entering the human race. And on this occasion, because women are the problem, Paul focuses on Eve. But on other, all, every other occasion that he goes to Adam and Eve, it's always Adam that he says is the one responsible for sin. See how he's tailored his use of scripture to the context that he is writing to. And the order of creation. Oh, just think about it. Sometimes, you, you know... <laughs> Take, take something on to its next level. If the order of creation is important, if Adam being made first makes him more important than Eve, then just expand that out to the rest of Genesis 1 and you will find that the weeds growing out in the courtyard are more important than you because the plants were made before the humans. Yeah? Some arguments are just Nonsense. You cannot say the order of creation reflects the order of importance. Nonsense. Plants were made before humanity. Animals were made before humanity. You know, is, is, is the church spider of more value than you are? You're all looking around to see if you can find it now. Sometimes nonsense just has to be called nonsense. And to wheel this verse out and say men are more important than women is nonsense. Utter nonsense. And then we'll have this, which is just like comes in from left field. And you're like, what on earth are you on, Paul? Or what are you saying now in verse 15? Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. <laughs> and you're reading that and you're thinking, what has that got to do with anything? And in the wrong hands, listen to me, in the wrong hands, in the hands of ignorant men who want to silence women in the church, this becomes a threat. This becomes a a case of, at the end of this passage, God gives a warning. And the warning is, if you women don't stay silent and stay in your place and, and, and do what I'm telling you to do, God will then make childbearing much more painful for you. And it becomes a threat. And it's horrendous. <laughs> it's a horrendous way to handle the scriptures. Think about what I told you earlier about the Artemis cult. Think about Artemis who was the goddess of, among other things, midwifery. Who in Greek mythology had watched her mother in pain and in labor for nine days, bearing her twin brother Apollo. Think of the fact that in that culture in Ephesus, 
every young woman cried out to Artemis whenever she was in pain in childbearing. And every young woman who was coming into the church was, was still carrying that with her and was probably fearful if I come to church and I, I don't dress as a follower of Artemis anymore, I come to church and I worship God and I leave all that behind, then whenever I come to the point where I'm giving birth, I will not be able to cry out to Artemis because I've left her behind. And Paul is saying, you know, this is not a threat. Quite the opposite. It's amazing how people reverse the scriptures. It is the opposite. Verse 15 is not a threat. It's a promise saying, don't worry about childbearing. God will look after you. Don't think that that means you have to hang on to your connection to this cult of Artemis to be protected in childbearing. No, leave it all behind. Make a complete clean break. God will look after you. You'll be okay. Do you see how it's the complete opposite of what people can make it, make it to be? And in, in a, you know, a passage that people use and say Paul shuts down women and makes these threats against them, Paul is doing the complete opposite. The complete opposite. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. I take it literally. I only read the Bible. I won't read any other books or do any other research. Well, then you will mishandle the scriptures and you'll wreck people and you will not be true to what Paul is saying. It's amazing when you know the background and then you read through and like, ah, that's why he randomly, just out of nowhere, talks about childbearing. One of the biggest aspects of, and one of the things that would probably would have drawn huge numbers of young women to follow Artemis was this promise that she would help them in childbearing. Paul says, forget about her, God's got you. So back to the difficult one, 2.12. And with this, we'll, we'll wrap up. I do not permit a woman to teach, to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. They must not teach. Right, is it any wonder? <laughs> After what we've just seen, of what life was like for young women growing up in Ephesus and older women and anyone who had had lived under the influence of this cult, is it any wonder that Paul says they're not to teach in your church, Timothy? Don't let them do it. It's just, it's a no-brainer. Somebody, you know, high priest of Artemis appears at the door. You're not going to say here, would you bring a word next week? All right. You're not going to let them teach. You're not going to let them have influence. Is this, a, this is a, a, an example then of 1 Timothy 1, 7, where Paul says people, he talks about people who want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. These women, they're coming into the church. They want to have influence because they're used to having huge influence and, and being domineering and they want to teach. And Paul says, no. You don't know what you're talking about and therefore you can't teach. Now listen, is that a, a universal prohibition against women teaching? Because you've, you've misheard it if you think it is. It is not a universal prohibition against women teaching. It is a command that they should not teach until they have learned. <laughs> they can't just be let loose until they have actually learned what they're talking about. And it applies to men every bit as much as women. It's just that this context was full of these women. And that's why Paul says women. I do not permit a woman to teach. I believe is contextually confined to the situation in Ephesus that Timothy was in leadership over. I believe a principle can be drawn from it that is universal and global that people should not teach if they have not learned. 
got to handle the scriptures with a bit of sense, all right? I do not permit them to have authority over a man. And this verse will be wheeled out for people who say a woman should not be in leadership. She should not be an elder. She should not be in any position where she has influence over a man. And if you take that to an extreme, what do you do with a female musician in a worship band who at some stage during the service needs to communicate with the male singer and say, you're in the wrong key, you're playing the wrong chord, we're doing this song now. We'll rep-. You know, At that point, has she broken God's law by speaking to a man and giving him some sort of instruction? Nonsense. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority. Right. Here is the word in Greek for assuming authority. Authentin. And what, what you need to do here is go through your whole New Testament and look at all the other places this appears. It'll not take long. This is the only place it appears. And therefore, you've got to be careful with it. There's a, there's a fancy term for it in, in theological circles called a hapax legomenon. That's any word that is in the New Testament in Greek in one place only. Yeah? And here's what it means according to the Greek dictionary and according to uses elsewhere um, in, in Greek literature. It is not the word that Paul normally uses for authority, by the way. The Greek word is exousia for authority that Paul uses throughout the rest of his writings. He uses this word here only once. It means, first meaning, one who with his own hands kills another or himself. It's a very strong word. It also means one who acts on his own authority, autocratic. Autocratic means I'll do what I like. I will not listen to anyone else. No one else is going to teach me. No one else is going to tell me what to do. I will do my own thing. It's a word for someone who is an absolute master. That does not mean they're really good at something. It means they ruthlessly rule over who, you know, the people who are underneath them. And then it says to govern or to exercise dominion. This word does not mean to assume authority. This word means to violently, aggressively dominate and oppress other people and push them down so you can be top of the pile. It is a very, very violent word. And when Paul says that, do you understand again, why does he say that to the women in Ephesus? Because their whole life has been lived in a pagan cult where the women dominate. And the women take complete control over the men. And he says, you're not, you're, you know, he, he basically tells them, I know that you've grown up in this culture. You've grasped authority. You've dominated over people. You've refused to listen to anyone else but yourself and always done your own thing. Welcome to church. You won't do that here. <laughs> That's what he's saying to them. Is it a universal, all-time prohibition against women having leadership in the church? No, it is not. It is a prohibition against grasping at authority, dominating other people, putting people down. God is about equality, not about hierarchy. They must be quiet. She must be quiet. Again, and we'll see this next week in 1 Corinthians, the Greek word is not the word Paul normally uses for silence. This word, according to the dictionary, is a description of the life of one who stays at home doing his own work and does not officiously meddle in the affairs of others. In other words, to stay quiet in this context does not mean silence. It does not mean that once a woman sets her foot over the door of the church, she must be mute for the next hour and a half or whatever. 
does not mean that. It's not about silence. It's not about a lack of noise. It is about not being contentious, not meddling, not causing division, being a peaceful person. It applies to men every bit as much as women. That's what Paul is saying when he says she is to be quiet. She is not to cause contention, division, controversy. It doesn't mean she has to be silent. Because again, these women would come in and they would just, as soon as they're in the door, they'd be stirring up a fuss trying to take over. Paul says no. And in fact, I do not permit when you look into that, you will find, and this is, you know, through, through the years where you can see the influence of men on Bible translation. And I can remember, there was, and I can't remember, but I remember reading about a woman being put onto the NIV committee to, to be part of the translation team for the NIV. And, and pastors and leaders in America went clean nuts about a woman being on the committee to help translate the Bible. Paul it, when it says, I do not permit, literally in Greek, it's in what's called the present continuous tense. And what he says is, I am not permitting. Now, that does change things. As he gives this to Timothy, to, to tell Timothy what to do in Ephesus, I am not permitting this in this context. He doesn't issue this edict, I will never, ever permit this. I do not permit this anywhere. And if he does... If Paul is shutting down women here, he's in complete disagreement to everything we did last week and to Jesus. So there has to be an explanation of this passage that is not just literal black and white, women must stay silent in church. I'm nearly done. Do you know the most stunning verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2? And the one that men who want to silence women will never focus on but the most stunning verse you see in the first century women were not educated a girl got married when she was 14 she would marry a man who was 30 the man would have slept around with many women would have traveled would have learned very educated 30 years old and this girl 14 years old would move out of her dad's house into his house and marry him uneducated that's what culture was like for women and here's a quote from a guy called Demosthenes who says this, again, this will give you an idea of how the, how the men viewed women. We keep mistresses for pleasure. We attend the prostitutes for our daily needs and we have wives to bear us legitimate children. That's how men viewed women in that culture. And they were not allowed to learn. They were not educated. At the feet of a rabbi, you would just have men learning from the rabbi in order to become rabbis themselves. The most shocking statement that Paul makes is not in verse 12 at the bottom of the screen. We read this and we're shocked by, I do not permit a woman to teach. For the people hearing this, the most shocking countercultural Christian statement here is, a woman should learn. That's the most Christ-like thing in this verse. You see, Paul hung out with Luke a lot and traveled with Luke and Luke obviously wrote about Jesus and Luke was the one who told us about Mary who sat at the Lord's feet now you didn't sit at a man's feet if a rabbi came to town men sat at his feet and listened to him and learned from him with the intention that they would then at a later stage teach what they had learned you learned in order to then teach Mary is sitting with the men Martha's problem is not so much that, that, that you know, Mary's not helping out with you know, serving the buns. 
Martha's problem more so is the fact that Mary has taken a place with the men at the feet of Jesus and women weren't meant to do that. And Jesus completely puts an end to that and changes everything in a moment and says, Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken away from her. In fact, he basically says, yes, Mary is at my feet. She is learning from me. This is not normally what happens. Things are changing. <laughs> Things are changing. And Paul picked up on that and said, a woman should learn. These women who were not allowed to learn, Paul is not, again, it's the complete opposite of what people do with this passage. They say, I do not permit a woman to teach, and they shut down their women. And in fact, what Paul is saying is, see your women who have been shut down for centuries and not allowed to learn? I want them to learn. Total opposite. I want them to learn so that they will then be able to teach. So, What would I say to the men who would have the opinion that Paul is universally prohibiting women from teaching, from speaking in church, from braiding their hair, from wearing gold, from wearing per all the other things. If you're going to take one verse literally, you've got to do it with all of it. What would I say to them? I cannot simply politely disagree. I would say you're a fool. I would say you're the one who has been deceived if you hold this point of view. Not, not the woman. You're the one who's been deceived. You've misunderstood Paul. You're wrong. You're ignorant. You're really good at quoting the Bible, but you don't actually take it seriously. And not only are you tolerating, but you are helping to build a demonic stronghold in the church that shuts down half of the church from doing ministry. Boy, Satan's done well there to get in and build that one, hasn't he? Think of the intelligent young women that we all know. And older women as well that we all know. Think of the gifts that they have. The education they have. Their intelligence. Their ability to communicate and articulate. All the, all the things they can do. And we shut them down. We say, you can't do it. It's madness. To the women who know they are called and gifted by the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk more about that next week, I'd say learn first. Learn as much as you can. And to the men, the same thing. <laughs> learn, learn, learn. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Men and women, sit at the feet of Jesus and learn, 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 learn. Then go for it. And don't let anyone tell you to stop. And serve him with all your might and without fear. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray... I pray for understanding, Lord. I pray for, for your word to find good soil. For anyone for whom this has been a rattling of the cage, Lord, that they'll have an open heart. That they'll ponder it, that they'll reflect on it. Thank you for the historians and the teachers and the people who bring all this together for us so that we can understand it, Lord. And thank you for Paul and thank you for Jesus. And thank you that women have been set free because of Jesus. That he changed the world for women forever. And I pray, Lord, for the women who are here. That you will anoint them, fill them, inspire them, take away all fear. And release them, Lord, to serve you with all that you've given to them. In Jesus' name, amen.